This is season 12 of the Sustainable Asia podcast, mapping the Asia plastic crisis. I am Bonnie Ao. And I'm Marcy Trent Long. Our team at Sustainable Asia partnered with the Heinrich Boll Foundation and Break Free from Plastic Asia Pacific to produce this series. In the last episode, we introduced Japan's Kamikatsu town as the gold standard for a new trend in Asia, zero-waste villages. And other communities in Asia, such as the Philippines' San Fernando City, are following suit. In this episode, we'll traverse from Hong Kong to South Korea and onto Pune, India to compare how the surge of disposable plastic waste over the last decade and during COVID is being tackled by governments here in Asia. To start off, we thought we would hit home where Sustainable Asia is based in Hong Kong, which, unlike its neighbors, has had no new legislation in the last decade on plastic waste management. So Bonnie spoke to one of the leading NGOs in the city to highlight these issues by focusing on how they're tackling plastic waste in the age of the COVID pandemic. Hi, my name is Angus Ho. I'm the founder of Winners Action. I've been involved in the environmental industry for over 20 years. We, Greeners Action, actually started as a self-initiated student-run group 20 years ago. Angus told me about an online survey that they carried out over the course of two weeks from October 13 last year. The survey aims to find a customer's behavior on face masks, such as what masks they use, is it a disposable mask or a non-disposable mask. Exactly 1,095 people took part in the survey. I actually remembered filling in one when my cousin shared the link on a WhatsApp group. The results show that 92% of users use disposable masks. Only 8% use reusable masks. We can then work out and estimate that for the entire population of 7.5 million, we are actually throwing away 54 million per week. So if we put that into perspective, say from February to November, we will have disposed of 2 billion face masks in the nine-month period. Most survey participants said they use disposable ones because they think they are safer and offer better protection and are more hygienic. Even those who chose to use reusable ones thought the same way. But they opted for the reusable ones mainly because it's less harmful to the environment. Unfortunately, most of the masks consumed in Hong Kong are just disposed of with general household waste in the landfills. So we then researched 20 different types of reusable masks that are already available on the market. These masks actually reached over 95% particle and bacterial filtration efficiency. So they are just as effective as disposable masks. We hope that this survey will be a wake-up call to the government, forcing them to call for better guidelines for the mass usage. But there's no movement by the government to introduce such guidelines. And unfortunately, social distancing rules during COVID discourage eating dining. 
So many people were ordering takeaway and shopping online. We are aware of the rising trend of takeaway orders, and it is so easy for most people to forget that they have the option to bring their own containers downstairs when buying food from the local restaurant. So we helped a campaign called "Fight the Virus with No Plastic" to remind people to say no to single-use plastic and encourage a habit change. In return, customers who supported the campaign at our partnering restaurants would be given a small rebate. This new norm of ordering takeaway and shopping online that peaked under lockdowns wasn't unique to Hong Kong. In fact, other parts of Asia, such as South Korea, also experienced a boom in online delivery. But the reaction there was a little different. This is Park Tahyo from Korea Zero Waste Movement Network. I spoke to Tahyo to find out how much more waste was generated during the pandemic. She said that although there are no exact data available yet, estimates suggest an increase of 10% in household waste since the start of the pandemic. But actually, because of the pandemic, she said, the amount of plastic waste accumulated has become so visible that people's awareness for plastic waste has gone up as a result. South Korea actually has one of the highest recycling rates in the region of around 85%, while plastic stands at 54%. For us in Hong Kong, Angus told me the latest government figures from 2019 showed a disappointing recycling rate of just 29%. I think that while a lot of people in Hong Kong do hope to reduce waste, I also think the opinions are a little polarized within the society. I think that the government still needs to play a bigger role in plastic waste reduction. Unlike Hong Kong, Tahyo told me why South Korea is able to achieve a relatively high recycling rate. It turns out that there is a NIMBY effect. She explained that in South Korea, there's actually not a lot of land compared to other countries, and because of the NIMBY effects, or not in my backyard, there's bound to be a lot of opposition from people who don't want waste facilities like landfill sites or incinerators near their homes. So realistically, since the option of new facilities is difficult to achieve, Koreans are more willing to reuse and recycle everything. Tahyo also emphasized that it's not just the government setting rules, but it also relies on stakeholders and individuals working together towards a mutual goal. She said, compared to other countries which usually take a top-down approach, the South Korean government gives an overall guideline. And corporates and civic groups take the initiative to set up their own goals to reduce plastic waste, and the reduction rate has significantly gone up in the past three years. South Korea's ambitious plastic waste and recycling programs were inspired in part by a 2018 announcement from China. Banning imports of 24 waste categories, including unsorted plastic. South Korea, which had no such ban, was hit by a flood of imported plastic waste. Their Ministry of Environment 
had to take action and announced a new national waste reduction plan. The goal is to cut down plastic waste generation by half by 2030 and to increase recycling rate to 70%. As part of the implementation of these goals, the government would phase out plastic items that are hard to recycle and enforce producer responsibility on the end life of products and packaging. The policy aims to reduce waste by 20% at the manufacturing phase and achieve zero landfilling of domestic waste. This is Jun Moon, a researcher at Gaia, the Global Alliance of Incinerator Alternatives. Gaia aims to advance systematic change towards zero waste across the globe. She told me that the policy package also includes ban on plastic bags, single-use cups, straws, footwear, and single-use hygiene products that were often found in the unsorted imported waste. After China imposed a new ban on waste import, there have been a lot more countries who imposed the same kind of bans. And this kind of moves are pushing the countries um, who had been exporting waste in the past toward seeking fundamental solutions rather than finding other destinations. And South Korea is one of those destinations. The amount of plastic imported to Korea went up by five times in the first four months of uh, China's waste import ban. In June 2020, the Korean government announced a ban on importation of waste for four types of plastic, and that's because the amount of plastic waste that was shipped to Korea more than doubled in 2018. But Korea has enough plastic waste to grapple with, so that's why it announced a new ban on uh, four types of plastic. And it's too soon to um, talk about the impact because it has not been fully implemented yet. And here's Tahyo again. She said the government will continue to work step by step towards this goal, while other stakeholders are making efforts to switch to more eco friendly alternatives, such as setting up more refilling stations and expanding markets with zero packaging. So it looks like South Korea has really been pushing forward. What about us in Hong Kong? I think the government is using the easy way out solving issues like money. For example, they will pay a bunch of contractors to manage the recycled items or set up a couple of communal connection points. But they never thought about solving the problem upstream as this requires negotiating with corporates, businesses, like supermarket chains, and the government may face pressure from those industries. I don't see the government having the firmness to deal with this. Angus has reasons to be skeptical. Since the first waste blueprint published by the government in 2013, waste per capita has reached record highs rather than decreasing. I actually think if other countries like South Korea are able to ban single-use plastic, Hong Kong should be able to do the same. It is really up to the government whether they have the perseverance to push these initiatives forward.
Hong Kong recently published a new waste blueprint with a mid-term goal to reduce the per capita municipal solid waste disposal rate by 40 to 45 percent and raise the recovery rate to about 55 percent. With a long-term goal to move away from the reliance on landfills for direct waste disposal by building a circular economy. Encouraging, but the jury is still out. The perseverance that Angus mentioned needed for governments to reduce waste here in Asia is still uncertain. We spoke in earlier episodes about the lack of polluter pay regulations in Southeast Asia. And in South Asia, after decades of struggling with the cascade of trash caused by imported waste, it's unclear if national governments have the courage to pull together a cohesive action plan. Now, we're going to turn our lens to India, where waste pickers or the informal sector perform the bulk of the waste management work. Can authorities also develop waste policies that support these underprivileged workers? My name is Lakshmi. I uh, am one of the founders of an organization called Paper Tin Metal Workers Organization. It's essentially a trade union of waste pickers based in Pune, Maharashtra in India. I saw plastics through the eyes of waste pickers, really. And uh, so I've learned to associate like they do. Some plastics as good, some as bad. Those that are recyclable, those that are not. And more than 60% of uh, waste in India does get recycled. And more than 80% of what is recycled is recycled due to the informal sector. Unfortunately, across the world and definitely in Asia, where we have a strong recycling sector, it is the front-end soldiers of the recycling sector who are the base of the pyramid, the waste pickers, who are typically treated as responsible for the plastics that are not recycled. Not only are they not responsible for creating it, but they actually are, for the most part, responsible for any kind of recycling that happens. And yet, they get the blame. As Lakshmi said, the impacts of plastic pollution have been harder on the poor, including waste pickers across Asia. So I wanted to know if COVID-19 made the situation worse. So during COVID, actually, uh, oil prices dropped, but that was really more, more than anything else because of the very intense lockdown in India. Most scrap shops were closed because recyclers were closed. And because recyclers and scrap shops were closed, waste collectors could simply not retrieve the plastics because there was no place they could sell it to. And there was simply no place to store such large volumes of uh, plastics. And therefore, there was a long period when these materials simply didn't get recycled. So let's take a step back and find out about how India's recycling system works. So there are uh, national, state and uh, city level regulations. The actual waste collection systems, the levels of decentralization that are appropriate for each city, the models that need to operate within the city for waste collection and for waste processing are very often determined by the uh, local municipality. And Lakshmi said in some cities like Pune, where she lives and works, there's a fairly strong representation of waste pickers. They've been organized and they're fairly empowered and able to articulate and advocate for their integration in waste collection. But in many parts of the country, the collection of waste is outsourced to small or large contractors or sometimes even large companies who collect the waste from the doorstep or from containers and take it to centralized plants or landfill sites, which are usually often not really landfill sites, but dump sites. 
So the regulations in India seem somewhat varied from city to city. What gets recycled depends largely on how economically viable it is to recycle anything. So almost a capitalistic system for recycling. And Lakshmi said recycling in her country is effectively subsidized by very poor people who are willing to retrieve that last piece of paper or plastic or metal because it has value. So when we're talking about some kinds of plastics that don't get recycled, they are so low down the value chain that it's simply not viable even for the poorest waste picker to break her back picking up that last piece of plastic and recycling it because it cannot go through the logistic costs and processes of transportation and bailing and pre-processing and sorting and then getting recycled into a product that finally doesn't have the kind of market that makes the entire process viable. So I asked her to give some examples for these low-value plastics the plastics that don't provide value to the waste pickers. Uh, So we're talking about the plastic bags that are used to package biscuits and chocolates. And in India, particularly in Asia, actually, we have these very small sachets where manufacturers are selling shampoo for a single use, conditioners for a single use, ketchup, and all kinds of consumables in very, very small quantities. Lakshmi said she's been trying to work with manufacturers to get more of this type of plastic packaging recycled. So one of the things that we've been arguing is that the manufacturers of low-value plastics pay the viability gap funding to ensure that their product gets recycled. And if the viability gap funding is too high and it's simply not viable for them to pay it, then they simply stop manufacturing those products. So in a sense, Lakshmi is pushing for some kind of a polluter pay program in Pune, where producers of multi-layer or cheap plastic integrate waste pickers into their waste collection strategy. They pay a price so that not only is it viable for her to pick it, but that it is viable for the system to transport it to where it is baled and then sent for recycling. If you're looking at the cumulative wages of all the waste pickers across the city and what they earn per month, it is a good around 8 to 10% increase in their earnings. And it's just one more material that they collect along with everything else. Pune in India is admirably trying to find solutions to multi-layer plastic recycling and integrating waste pickers at the same time, working with low-paid, underappreciated workers that are the backbone of many recycling systems here in Asia. And all of Lakshmi's work as a trade union activist, that's needed because India, like Hong Kong, is still reviewing and revising its regulations to tackle plastic waste. In fact, though India banned imported plastic waste in 2019, the country still hasn't approved the National Resource Efficiency Policy to set the Roadmap for Producer Responsibility programs to reduce plastic waste. Perhaps China's bold move to ban plastic imports is in the long run a win-win globally. It definitely alarmed many countries into reviewing their own recycling systems. And it created the impetus for new plastic waste import bans in many Asian countries. And in a way, it helped propel many Asian nations to create plastic waste reduction goals. Like in South Korea and Japan. But can the current pace of government action or inaction to reduce plastic waste be enough to help with the biggest environmental challenge of our lifetime? In our next and final episode, we'll hear from experts we've interviewed throughout this season 
on how they link global plastic pollution to climate change. Thank you to our partner, the Heinrich Boll Foundation, for allowing us to use the formidable research behind their new publication, Plastic Atlas Asia. Heinrich Boll Foundation is a green think tank from Germany and has more than 30 offices around the world, including Hong Kong. They produce an excellent series of publications, including Ocean Atlas, Agriculture Atlas, and a recent publication, Insect Atlas 2020. Also, thanks to the support for this series from Break Free from Plastic Asia-Pacific. Break Free from Plastic is a global movement of 11,000 organizations and individuals worldwide, including Sustainable Asia. And as you can guess from the name, they share a vision of a future that's free from plastic pollution. My name is Marcy Trent Long. Our co-host producer and sound engineer is Bonnie Al. Jiaxing Li is the associate producer. A big thank you to our guests Angus Ho, Pak Da Hyol, Dun Moon, and Lakshmi Narayan. And a shout out to the Sustainable Asia team, including voiceover Joseph Ao, contributing editor Jill Baxter, and communications manager Sally Lau. Alexander Mobison created the intro-outro music made from repurposed and recovered waste items.